0: Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcast. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Bob Moore, CEO of Crossbeam, which is a collaborative data platform that helps companies get value out of partnerships faster. Crossbeam has raised $117 million to date. Bob, welcome to World of DAS.
1: Hey, so happy to be here. The world of DAS is my favorite world. I'm looking forward to this
0: conversation. (laughs) All right. Now, Crossbeam kind of lets these customers automate the sharing of sales pipeline with their partners, but it kind of starts, like a customer has to start by connecting their CRM, like Salesforce or something, to Crossbeam. seems like there's a cold start problem. Like, How did you go about convincing the first 20 customers or so to connect those CRMs? Yeah,
1: this is, it's such a
0: great question because when we
1: started this company in 2018, you know, I got a, a lot more head scratching and funny looks from you know folks in the, the data community and VCs and whatnot than you might expect looking at the business today. And the main reason was exactly what you described, which is there is no such thing as single player mode in Crossbeam. We yep. should have never ever had a first customer. Like when, when the first company signed up. And they got there. It was like if you joined LinkedIn and there was nobody to connect to, <laughs> there's, there's nothing to do. So in the very early days, I think we had a couple of things that were just hacks that allowed us to get these atomic networks going, right? Like what is what is the smallest possible micro network within the big network graph that would allow the value proposition to be realized? And for most companies that really is just their top one or two partners. Like if we can get any given company to sign up and bring a partner with them, then we can at least give them evidence that the value proposition of doing this is real. And if it's compelling enough, then they will hopefully use that as evidence to say, hey, let me go recruit the other hundred partners that are in my network. So we took that thesis and we combined it with the fact that very fortunately, this is not my first rodeo. And you know, I had built and sold two other SaaS businesses before this, RJ Metrics, which was a data analytics platform in the e-commerce space, and then Stitch Data, which was a data pipeline ETL platform, kind of more on the infrastructure side. And the first customer on Crossbeam was Stitch. The second yeah. company that came on Crossbeam was one of Stitch's closest partners. And we kind of ran through my Rolodex and it, Jess Waldeck, who's our, our chief revenue officer, he and I used to describe this like, it's landing two jumbo jets on the same runway at the same time, side-by-side, side, over, over, <laughs> over and over. Because there was no such thing as a single sales deal. like Every sales deal was closing two companies simultaneously. Yeah. And if they didn't both close, neither one of them had a value proposition. So for the first, I'd call it 100 companies, which probably took us you know a year and a half to get on board. That was the thing, kind of like rinse and repeat, land those jumbo jets, land those jumbo jets. But we started then getting to a point where you know, the jumbo jets that had already landed, started connecting to each other. And yep. there's a lot of this organic, like second
0: order growth that would happen. And, and that's is, when is the it real- like a, Is it essentially, it's like a Metcalfe's law thing where like the value of the network grows with each node or because every time there's a node, like there's a, at least a potential I could be connecting with that? That's exactly right.
1: And we kind of do, there's a whole product like growth motion where- We've done a lot of work to lower the barriers to having a new partner sign up. So whether you're trying to connect with somebody who's on Crossbeam or who's not on Crossbeam yet, the experience for you as a user is pretty similar. It's just a question of whether that that person you're inviting in has to actually onboard and what that journey looks like. But as we've shortened the cycle times to get new folks on board and we have a freemium model, so you know your your very first exposure to Crossbeam and getting your data connected never costs anybody anything. That's a really, really major accelerant. So, yeah, today we've got we've gotten to over seven thousand companies that are on the platform now. We just crossed that that number about a week ago, which is kind of kind of jaw dropping when you consider that we spent the first half of this company's life so far kind of getting to that first hundred. But once that boulder starts rolling downhill, it it really starts going.
0: Yeah, and before that, it's like if companies wanted to share. Well, first of all, people may not want to share when like their CRMs and stuff like that, because they're worried about you know things. And then they would either be emailing different customers to each other, or maybe they'd have some sort of shared Google doc that wasn't getting automated, updated and stuff. And you're basically, but I imagine most times you just weren't sharing at all because it was just too much of a burden.
1: Yeah. I mean, we talk about this almost like if you remember the old prisoner's dilemma problem from game theory, where- You know, you and your co-conspirator robbed a bank, and then the you get caught by the cops and you get put in different rooms. And you know, if you rat on your friend and they don't rat on you, then you get away, but they go to jail forever. If the opposite happens, they get away and you go to jail forever. If you both rat on each other, you both go to jail for 10 years. And if neither of you rats, you know, you both get like a light, like one year sentence. And the problem with this that prisoner's dilemma problem is that there is no solution, like the Nash equilibrium, the, the actual technical solution is for both of you to rat on each other because the optimal move is always to rat on your opponent, no matter what your opponent's behavior is. So there's this this glory land of you both trust each other and you both kind of do the, the safe thing, but it's betrayed by the information asymmetry that exists in the problem. And it's the same exact thing that happens with data sharing and collaborating absent a system like Crossbeam, which is, do I share or do I not share? Does my partner share or do they not share? And if you're trying to draw a Venn diagram between my data and yours, the simple mathematical fact is you cannot draw a Venn diagram unless you have all of the data from both of the sources, which means yeah. I either have to grossly overshare with you, which is this old school like emailing spreadsheets around account mapping thing you're talking about, or just don't share at all. And that's kind of this awful dichotomy that people were left with in the partnerships world you know, for the last several decades, which is either this kind of backroom oversharing poorly maintained, stale data, bad accuracy world, or partnerships that are basically press releases and high fives and and very, very superficial in nature. And it feels a lot different than how sales and marketing and product and others have advanced their
0: data-driven motions over the last decade. And that was kind of the problem set that we wanted to fix. One of the nice things about, at least when you started, I imagine, is there's not that many well-known CRMs. There's a small number of CRM systems that have very high market share. And so you can build tight integrations with Salesforce and HubSpot. And maybe you just need those two to start. And you really cover a very large percentage, especially if you're going after like tech companies or something, a very large percentage of companies. And then they have APIs. Maybe Salesforce doesn't always work and stuff and it's buggy, but they have APIs. They have other things that you can go and you can actually get access to that data.
1: Yeah, very true. I mean, we I think we caught a lot of really fortunate tailwinds in starting this business and and one of them was definitely just the maturation of the API economy at large. So, back in the early RJ Metrics days, you know, we'd try to suck data out of everything from back-end databases to, you know, old-school ERP platforms to your your most modern systems and you know, APIs were kind of a joke. I mean, it was, you'd get giant like WSDL files that were full of confusing XML that was like the spec of how you would get data out. And, you know, documentation would be non-existent even for more modern APIs, they would change, the spec would change overnight. So what data was coming was completely unpredictable and, and your system would just break. And what we saw really happen between, you know, 2010 and 2020 was that space just matured radically. And I think some underlying supporting tooling became very important. I think the expectations of API consumers ended up driving a lot of the market direction on that. But it really got to a point where APIs were suddenly extremely well documented. And, and even in some cases they sat behind SLAs and had like very specific availability expectations that could be relied upon. And our company Stitch, which we only ran for two years from 2016 to 2018, and then it, we we got acquired by Talent that whole business was predicated on the idea that APIs have reached enough of a state of maturity that you can trust them. And that whole business was, you know, it was like an early competitor to like a FiveTran or a Matillion. Let's pull the data out of all these APIs that exist, drop it into your cloud-based data warehouse, and then you can build, you know, business critical systems on top of those data pipelines. And Crossbeam could have never ever existed if that same underlying API economy shift and evolution hadn't happened for exactly the reasons you described. Like We need to tap into these APIs of these CRM systems to even have the table stakes for
0: doing what we do. The other interesting thing that I think, at least from the early days of Crossbeam, is most of what you were doing in the early days was like doing account mapping. So it's like, okay, you both are selling into Microsoft or something like that. And while that's a hard problem, of like understanding that these two are the exact same, they're you know, both Microsoft. It's a much easier problem than doing like mapping of individuals or other. How do you think about like a, if you think of join keys, there's lots of different types of join yeah. keys, but like one join key would be some sort of join key on a company or organization that you can join on. How do you think about that? Obviously you can join on domain name, you can join on maybe the name of it. There's other ways to like, is that one of just the things you had to figure out?
1: Yeah, it's funny the the analogy we often use for this in sales calls is like look i'm if i'm selling to delta airlines and you're selling to delta faucets right or delta van right. lines or like delta, or delta dental, dental. Right? yeah right it's like there's a whole a whole big rat's nest you can get into there and that's to say nothing of like what happens when companies acquire each other and you've got subsidiaries and like yep. the Yeah, there's a lot of nested things Um, that
0: happen or joint ventures and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, it
1: can get pretty ugly. So the honest answer is if you rewind the clock all the way back to like 2018, 2019, we took an extremely naive approach to this because we didn't have the training data necessary to do anything more sophisticated. So if you use Crossbeam in our first year or two, we were literally just matching on domain name. Like we yeah, would look okay, at the domain name it. on the
0: record, which is not, it turns out to not be no a bad match. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably uh, because there, 70, 80% yeah. accurate, right? Or there's like right. a
1: forced yeah. uniqueness to it. Yep. There, There's reasons why people maintain the integrity of that data in their CRMs because it's very often tied to like other data enrichment platforms and things like that. Yep. So like, it's pretty darn good, but for all the problems, you know, mentioned, it's not, it's not perfect. And as we got into more large enterprise companies and big data sets, you do get into these cases where people don't have domain names at all, or even like us at Crossbeam, right? When we started out, our domain was getcrossbeam.com. Eventually we acquired the crossbeam.com domain. If one company had us as a sales target with the getcrossbeam and another yeah. had Crossbeam, it would not be a match in, yeah. in our system. So what's evolved over time is you know, now that we have these thousands and thousands of companies that have connected their data, we've been able to you know, do large scale kind of, you know, anonymized, abstracted studies of where good matches and bad matches happen and understanding what are the characteristics of false negatives when we see them, what are the characteristics of false positive. And we've been able to incorporate a, a bunch of additional dimensions. Some of them are dimensions that exist within the primary data set that's coming in. So something as simple as company name, yeah. you know, you you would never match just on the word Delta for the reasons we describe. But if you're talking about Really helpful a, to add. Yeah, you, know. you know, there's a lot of made up words in company names or a lot of kind of yeah. portmanteaus and other things that you can kind of have a high confidence that they are uniquely associated with a company name. If it
0: says Microsoft, can, there's a good chance it has something to do with the company Microsoft. Yeah, chances are, yeah,
1: it's yeah. Uh, there's not like a Google plumbing out in, in Indiana yeah. somewhere. Right? Like, So you, you can build heuristics around that. and also factor in you know if people are attaching contact records and information about individuals you can yep. get you can boost your confidence that if the same human with the same contact information is associated with this record in different companies even if there's a domain missing you probably have confidence of the match and it's just evolved you know the matching algorithm has gotten a lot smarter over time up to and including things that are not necessarily present in the primary data source like a cool hack is like, hey, if you go to get com right now, guess what? There's a 301 redirect happening. Right. Yeah, desktop. exactly. You might as well just check right. it out. Yeah. Like it's not the hardest thing in the world to go scour all those domains, figure out the redirect rules and create these associated linkages that can have multiple domains owned by the same entity that might be what you're matching against. So I think it's something that constantly, it's a cool thing because once you build the framework, the more data you get, the smarter it gets automatically without needing to write more code. It's still imperfect. A lot of that stuff around like subsidiaries and joint ventures and stuff, it's like, it can be messy. Like I won't say- The it's Russian like, doll
0: nested thing. Yeah.
1: But I will say this, which is we always over-index on, it's better to have a false negative than a false positive. Because for us, the positive, yeah, yeah, the course. linkage, when people yeah. share data, yep. and we place a lot of importance on never having data accidentally leaked to the other party. So we want to get to a really high confidence level before we say, okay, it's a
0: match. And therefore, this has triggered this collaborative workflow that, that's going to happen downstream. Yeah. One, one of the things that's interesting, like, could you imagine you could have another service where you have an API where cuz there's a lot of people trying to join data on companies it's a very yeah. very complicated thing and they could have, you could have a simple API this might be a maybe another company should spin out like stitch data or something where you know companies like they have different data points they hit it and you get some sort of very very nice data back about the company and then maybe some sort of like internal crossbeam ID for the company Yeah, it's a smart take and it's a subject that's come up quite a bit
1: here internally, actually, which is this idea that we have, and this happens all the time. This is literally the origin story of Stitch, right? Stitch was a spin out of RJ Metrics that we had to build in order to make our product work. And then it turned out that it had broad-based use cases that extended way beyond the application we built it for. It's the same exact thing. So yeah, we, we have had discussions about kind of separating and productizing the matching algorithm into its own thing. So, hey, if you want to shoot me, if you're listening out there and you would be a consumer <laughs> of that product, shoot me an email. I'd, I'd love to kind of build out the, the use cases for it. Architecturally, it would be very, very possible for us to do. I think it's just a question of like, hey, classic product market fit and like, you know, focus... Kind. Yeah.
0: Sequencing kind of question, but I dig it. I'm very into that that line of thinking. Okay. Well, when that adds another 10 billion to your market cap, just cut me in for 10% of that and we're all good. Uh, I got a I got a t-shirt ready to ship out for you. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. We'll take I'll take swag instead. <laughs> That's fair. One of the interesting thing is that like there are not a lot of products, at least that I know of, that are selling to like the BD or partnerships function maybe in some ways that could be a challenge but in some ways that's also i imagine a blessing for crossbeam
1: yeah it is both the blessing part is all around the things that exist at the very very top of the funnel that i think frankly are are you know having built a company in the business intelligence and analytics space which is such a crowded competitive kind of commoditized universe where you're just you know, grasping for mindshare and you know thought leadership attention coming into the partnership space was like a breath of fresh air. Because, and no no disrespect to the the many really interesting companies that have been built around partner tech over the last several decades, but the reality is that the majority of the vendors in your classic like PRM you know partner relationship management space, which was kind of the only game in town for partner software, were founded. In just a previous vintage of companies, you know, most of these businesses are are more than ten years old, and they're kind of at the stage of their lives where they're they've got scale, but maybe they're growing a little slower. Nobody's a public company; everybody's kind of private equity owned. And I think a lot of the modern motions for growth through community, through content marketing, through thought leadership, through category creation—none of these playbooks had really been run in that space at all. And to me, that just felt like a really, really fun and exciting area to do some work because there was a lot of Greenfield where you know we could try and realistically give a voice to that next generation of partnership professionals who could see the opportunity that existed in their space and in the value they created, but didn't necessarily feel the kind of love from whether it was the press or the career advancement opportunities or the underlying technology that, that they saw their peers in sales and marketing and customer success getting. So one of our investors and, and friends at me was Nick Mehta from Gainsight, which is a one of the maybe greatest examples out there of taking something that was kind of a almost like a vacuum of thought leadership around a particular job function that was under glamorized. And in his case, this is customer success and yep. really building... A narrative around that, that allowed a, a really substantial company to take form around it and make it part of a bigger story where they were always at the center. And, and I, I admire that a lot. And I think, you know, we've learned a lot
0: from like looking at their example. Yeah, Nick then, is, I mean, he's a real, he really understands category creation, which in some ways is something very, very important for Crossbeam itself, because you're kind of inventing this category. Really true. And, and that gets to the flip side of the coin in the
1: partnership space, right? Which is like, okay, yeah, these PRM categories do historically exist, but the question around who's your buyer, where do they get budget from, how's the ROI being calculated, how's it justified internally? These are the best, smartest questions that early stage VCs were answering us where our intellectually honest answer was, we don't necessarily know. We just know that we are unlocking a wealth of value that has previously been inaccessible. And we think that if we're good enough at... Delivering that value and unlocking it, there will be a sufficient ROI case to be made that will figure out the path to budget. And I think the way that's played out for us is, you know, the budget tends to come out of the revenue organizations. It's usually that our champion is somebody with the word partnerships or alliances or business development somewhere in their title, but usually they're. Know, reporting into a chief revenue officer or VP that has more of a generic sales function, but the outputs of our product are such a force multiplier for go-to-market teams that it's their budget that's able to be spent on it. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it comes out of revenue ops because it is a little bit of like a, a data enrichment play in some companies. But you know, we've been able to crack that, but it has required kind of reinventing or maybe even just inventing the wheel in general for this space. And it's created a little more lead time on like the path to you know, making the self process repeatable and predictable. Cause we're kind of, we're holding
0: the machete, cutting the trail as we're. At data. <laughs> this idea of second party data sharing is super interesting. As we discussed, I think Crossboom has a advantage because you're focused on mostly sharing data about accounts and accounts are maybe not, you know, they're, they're somewhat sensitive, but they're not super sensitive. There's no privacy on necessarily account or anything like that. You could imagine like B2 C companies wanting to do something very, very similar doing some sort of second sharing party sharing. we can imagine like Starbucks and McDonald's wanting to share data about customers and how to co-market to customers or something like that. How do you think like if someone was going to build for that type of system, they would have to do it differently?
1: Yeah, there's, you know, one of the funny things about CrossFit is we were founded in the same month that GDPR went live. I think it's like March of 2018 or something like that. So we kind of have existed in this post GDPR world throughout our, our entire time. And it's been very front and center in how we've thought about privacy and compliance and, you know, not just building a system that is able to fit within people's frameworks, but also allowing our product to evolve. In a direction where it's additive to people's strategies in those areas as opposed to something that represents a risk. So, when we think about B2C use cases, we think about it through that lens, which is we're not here to help people like cheat the system or or bypass the privacy requirements that exist. What we're trying to do is create a way that they can actually institutionalize the rules and governance that their companies have around privacy so that they can collaborate outside of company lines without basically stepping outside of the boundaries that are acceptable and appropriate. So what does that actually mean? What's it translate to? When you talk about B2C companies, one slam dunk use case that, that we have helped folks with is, you know, if you think about us as basically like an escrow service for data that sits in between companies that are collaborating, nothing says that you actually need to share any individual data points to get interesting and actionable insights out the other side. You know, Imagine a world where you know, you've got the McDonald's on one side and the Starbucks on the other, and you've got these large sensitive data sets, but you're able to basically house them, remain the owner of that data, house that data in this trusted third-party platform that is Crossbeam, run queries and analytics on the combined data sets that are going to tell you things like aggregate statistics that are aggregated such that it would be impossible to reduce those results back down to any specific individual, but that might still tell you extremely interesting and actionable things about everything from you know, where you should build your next store to you know, what products might lead to the best co-promotions to you know what the ideal customer profile looks like in, in emerging markets. It's really just a matter of this question of how the heck do we get our data in the same spot? A with a you know centralized trusted third party, and then B, how do we trust that that third party can negotiate the figuring out of that join key that you were talking about before, so that we can actually have these data sets be compatible, so that we can we can query what's sitting inside of it. So, you know, the safest path around protecting your customers' privacy and and PII is just not to share any customer data at the individual customer level and to strip out all that PII to begin with, but to kind of have Crossbeam sit there as a kind of like this SQL Switzerland that sits in between companies and then lets you, lets you run these aggregate queries that'll answer your questions. So that's an easy one, right? There's a bunch of other ways that, you know, B2C companies could potentially put this to use, but
0: I think the, the slam dunk and easiest to explain one is probably that. So Safegraph was, I think, one of those first 100 or so companies that you that you mentioned we've been really benefiting yeah. from crossbeam one of the benefits that we have as a smaller company is we can work with the very very large companies that there's a high likelihood that they will have a customer that's in our CRM and that it provides a like kind of an impetus linkage it provides a lot of reason to talk to them etc it's been really really helpful for maybe as a smaller do you see this as like also a leveler for different companies?
1: Yeah, it definitely is. There's undeniable like the power law rule still applies in partnerships. You know, it's it's historically been very true that for any given company the you know, the top 20% of their partners yield that 80% plus of the value. I think if anything what crossbeam helps do is kind of fatten the tail of that curve out a little bit more because the lift associated with having another partner or You know, working or identifying a deal from a net new partner relative to one that you work with a ton, that that burden just gets lessened and it allows you to have a larger ecosystem that creates more impact. So, if you think about what that means, Certainly, for the big the big companies out there, the the supernodes that have thousands of partners, sure, it's very impactful. You, you diversify your you know co selling and, and cross selling resources, and you make your team more efficient. But guess who? It's also really valuable for all those companies that are sitting out in that long tail that is now a whole bunch you know thicker and makes those big kind of supernode players more accessible to them. So there's this mutual benefit that kicks in where. Even if you are a smaller or mid market company, everybody always wants to partner with with folks that are either their peers or kind of you know larger than them. And what this is doing is providing a means by which those bigger players can do more with more of the smaller players and provide a more kind of equitable path to those folks earning their way up to the head of that power law curve. And we do see that happening a lot and particularly with you know, we've got several dozen publicly traded companies on the platform now, and I think we've got thirty or forty percent of the SaaS one thousand that's on there. And when we do see these big supernode companies coming on, of course, yeah, they care a lot about their biggest partners getting connected. But it's so awesome to see the rest of the long tail also, you know, gradually working their way on. And you see some superstars emerge. And like looking at the movers and shakers in a partner ecosystem, and feeling like that's been influenced by. Crossbeam kind of leveling that playing field is is probably one of the most exciting things and feels like, to me, that feels like unlocking arbitrage for both parties. Like it's just like when we talk about value creation being the core tenant of why we think Crossbeam should exist and unlocking this previously constrained value, it's that exact thing that is kind of emblematic of, oh, there's net new value here that was literally unable to be captured. One of
0: the interesting things, usually when you have these like network effects businesses, like it actually, you mentioned it's like, okay, you're landing two planes at the time. And that, that's really, that's kind of what you're doing every time you're, you're bringing on a customer and that that's hard for sure. But when you think of a business like, you know, WhatsApp or LinkedIn or something like that, they may have to land like a million planes at a time. The first few years of Safegraph using Crosby, we were using with just one other partner, but we were getting a ton of value. I think the other partner may have only been using with us. They were getting value and it was working fine just with the two of us. And it was value just there. And of course, then, you know, certainly you want more partners there, but really just two can add a, have a lot of value.
1: Yeah, it's really, I think that is a, a somewhat unfair advantage that we've had relative to traditional players in the B2C network graph space, where particularly like, you know, in B2C, a lot of the network graphs, certainly there's social networks where that applies. Another case where that comes up a lot is marketplaces. Like you can imagine eBay is not all that exciting if
0: you've only yep. got, you know, five sellers on there. So you have right, to. Right. or of, if you think about Uber, would you need lots of drivers? Yeah. You know, oh, those are useful. Two, yeah.
1: Excited marketplaces. It's like there's all these hacks that people have to figure out there to like, kind of fake one side of the market. And they're, and they're very expensive
0: often to get, you know, you have to, if it's Uber, you have to incent all these drivers to to basically drive with no loads when you enter a new city to make it useful to people. So it becomes a very, very expensive thing to do. Whereas with you, it's very, very efficient from like a capital perspective.
1: Yeah. I think our ability to create those atomic networks is advantageous relative to like, you know, you think about a, a yeah, like an Uber or somebody like that, or even like an Airbnb. The way they have to cut it is they cut it by geography, right? And you look at you look at the early days of that. Frankly, Facebook was cut by geography too in the early days. It was college campus by college campus. You kind of go and like the atomic network is the social network present on that campus, and you do that until you get a large enough critical mass that it transcends geography. For us, it's ecosystem by ecosystem, and you know if we can go in and say, look. Everybody that's on the Salesforce app exchange is, is very, very exciting and intrinsically valuable to us. And then, you know, everybody that's in the modern data stack right, is intrinsically valuable. You know, what we've been able to knock out is kind of getting the critical mass on these very dense atomic networks inside of different tech stacks and ecosystems. And then we eventually reach a point where. Even those ecosystems are interconnected and it transcends the verticalized focus. But yeah, the atomic networks there generally are just way smaller for us too. So it's, that's certainly been an advantage that I, I think has
0: played to our favor. How do you think of these other B2B data companies that are around the ecosystem, like the Zoom infos of the world? How do you see you interacting with those over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, Zoom Info is one of the greatest SaaS companies of all time, right? I mean, you yeah. look at their, like, they went public recently, which gives us all the wealth of being able to look at their books and understand, like, the economics of that business. And it really is a, something that's truly incredible and admirable. And I think in a lot of ways, we end up being a pretty complimentary solution to a lot of those folks. And even like the previous generation, you know, players out there and kind of the, data enrichment space, like the, the D&Bs of the world, which still have a, a big presence in, in and among large enterprises, where the difference is when you purchase a product from somebody like a Zoom Info or a, a Clearbit or a d I can buy it, you can buy it, another yeah, company yeah. can buy it, and we're all buying the same exact thing. right? And that's part of why their business model is so compelling and profitable because you accumulate this data asset and you just resell the same thing. It's infinitely... Replicable, but you can sell it with really high margins over and over again. So it's yep, just like that, safe uh, Safegraph's in the data business. So we we understand that world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very very much so. Right. So yeah. when you get to scale, the incremental revenue from these things just drops right to the bottom line, and it really becomes more of like a how good are you at selling and like the sales strategy and the go to market strategy is the whole business once you get past that that core asset piece. So you know that that's very true there. With Crossbeam, it's a little different because. It's not that you're buying third-party data, it's that you're unlocking second-party data that yep. is actually yours and uniquely yours as a company based on the relationships you have in your ecosystem. And that might sound worse, right? Because you have to do all this work to unlock it, but the richness and the context around that data ends up becoming a completely different beast. That is, you know, Typically, that data is going to come in in a lot lower volume, but a lot greater breadth and depth in terms of... On an account by account basis, how and where it can get actioned in your sales motion or your marketing motion or your success motion to to drive more dollars and deals. So you know, I think the second party and the third parties can kind of sit side by side and be complementary. They're valuable in different parts of the funnel for different end users for different reasons. But you know, we are kind of like interesting cousins
0: in in the space in that way. And in some ways, like Crossbeam is like a data co-op. Have you? Spend time like studying other data co-ops and marketplaces. And what have you learned from them that you've taken back to the crossbeam business?
1: Yeah. In the early days of Crossbeam, did a lot of work on this and actually met the founders of a bunch of different kind of legacy data co-op businesses that had had exited over the years to various levels of success. And I think one of the things that if you ask me that question in like an early pitch meeting for Crossbeam, my tendency was to have a very kind of Defensive reaction to it, which is to say, you know, let me make one thing clear, which is a line in the sand about the vision of what we're building here, which is we are not a co op and we are not a marketplace. And what I mean by that is to say a co op is something where a whole bunch of people that may or may not know each other, throw a bunch of data into one collective pool, and the aggregated insights that come out of that pool of data are then equally accessible to everybody. Right. So and they're anonymized in some way. And it's kind of like yeah. this big group of data benefits the, the group. In a marketplace, you are potentially being matched up with people that you don't know for very transactional, kind of just purely, you know, free market, economically driven, you know, horse trading, for lack of a better term, of data between one party and another. Both a lot of huge, awesome businesses, including you know ones that you've created, have existed in those worlds. There's nothing wrong with those models, but Crossbeam is distinctly different in that every single connection that exists in Crossbeam is mutual opt-in between two specific parties who have absolute control over who can see what, when, and under what circumstances. And that can be managed on a partner-by-partner basis. And for that reason, it really is more like a data social network. It is more like LinkedIn for data than it is like Tinder for data or Uber for data. And that changes a lot about everything from how the network effects and the virality of the platform get created to what the value proposition is to how we charge for it. So I think in studying a lot of those businesses it felt to me like the ceiling was higher and the ability to unlock actionable outputs was greater taking that social network network graph approach as opposed to kind of the you know hub and spoke co-op or the highly dense
0: marketplace mesh model if that makes sense yeah interesting really really interesting now when i met you back in the rj metrics days like yeah. you didn't raise a ton of money, maybe it was partly due to the fact that you're new or we're just coming out of the global financial crisis and stuff. Then you start a Crossbeam. You know, full disclosure, I'm a Crossbeam investor, happy investor, and you raise a gazillion dollars in Crossbeam. Right. Like, how do you think about like is it now you're just using the advantage of being kind of a third time founder? Like, how do you think about the different ways of forming companies? Yeah, there is a lot
1: that kind of comes with experience here and it's actually funny if you if you google hard enough you can find there was an old article that was written in in the New York Times business section back in it would have probably been 2012 or something like that where it's a profile of Jake and myself were the co-founders of RJ Metrics and it's contrasting us with Roman the founder of Good Data which was one of our main competitors and you know Good Data is Fundraising history looked a lot like Crossbeams does now, right? Like they had raised a hundred million dollars plus. We at Crossbeam at the time had raised, you know, a paltry like one and a half million dollar seed round or something. (laughs) We we were kind of going toe to toe with with these big guys, and I think we were. In this article, I'm grandstanding a lot around this idea of like, you know, you don't need venture money in order to build a big company. And here's all the reasons why we think we can do this, you know, with organic growth and why it's the healthy thing for us to do. The intellectually honest thing I can say now, looking back on that version of myself, is that part of the reason we didn't raise money is because we couldn't, because we were inexperienced founders. I think we were bad at articulating the long term vision of how this would become a venture scale company that could have a really substantial outcome and ultimately we were building something that kind of wasn't worthy of venture scale funding in the way that you know many of our competitors were and many of those like looker you know that Ended up kind of winning the category that we were playing in at RJ Metrics, raised a a boatload of venture capital in their journey. So, you know, the the experience of having done that, and we did, we ended up raising around $24 million for RJ Metrics in a, a Series A and B, you know, by the time we sold that business. And, you know, I think the big learning there was when things finally really did start working at RJ, which was maybe a little, a little time after that New York Times article came out, or around that time, it just became the economics of SaaS became a lot more readily apparent around just like the idea that with every renewal and upsell and incremental year that you have a customer, the extent to which you are profitable on that relationship just grows and grows and grows. And because of that, it's acceptable to have a payback period that might be a year long or even two years longer. You, know, you look at the latest batch of companies that have gone public even longer than that in this space. And that just definitionally creates a cash constraint. Like, if it takes you two years to pay back what yep. you spent to acquire a customer and you're doubling every year, then by definition, as long as you can withstand that growth rate, you will be burning cash every single year throughout all time. And the day will come when that growth levels out or your economics get better and you can have a path toward profitability. But as long as the market is valuing growth, and you can sustain that growth rate, then what you should really do is capitalize the business well and like take yes for an answer from the market and achieve scale. And the the profitability is, is something that is always optionality that you have, but growth, always better to have profitability as an option and growth as a certainty than the other way around. Because that's really when you can get into these big, big market cap category defining business situations. So I think that was a big learning coming out of RJ is like, you know, I think we we missed the boat a little. We had this beautiful window of product market fit kind of from 2011 to call it 2014. And we started raising money around the tail end of that. And we got, we got clocked by the likes of Looker and other folks who, you know, came onto the scene a little later, capitalized way better, and ended up building better products and going to market in smarter ways and kind of running circles around us. So big, big learnings there. So anyway, all of that kind of brings us to Crossbeam and the strategy there. And I think Know it's a little bit of this question for me as a founder around like what am I really trying to do with this next phase of my life where the decision to go and take a shot at building another company was one where you know I kind of said, I'm not particularly interested in building toward the same level of outcome that we had at RJ Metrics or at Stitch, which like while it was, you know, fortunately great for a lot of our investors and, and very meaningful for a lot of our employees and for the founders. It operated at an order of magnitude that was still, you know, a cut beneath where we saw peer companies come out, right? Like I've never built and sold a company for a billion dollars plus. And I think in a lot of ways, going into crossbeam, my mentality was much more like that of a venture fund, saying, like, I don't want to invest my time in this phase of my life into something if I don't feel like it could be a like fund returning entity, right? Like the, I wanted to follow that like regret minimization framework that Jeff Bezos talks about sometimes where, you know, you just want to know that you swung the bat really hard and I'm actually willing to have it go to zero more so than I am willing to spend a decade of my life on it and sell it for an amount that's, you know, not going to be more meaningful than something I've done in the past.
0: So one of the things with Looker as as opposed to RTM, in some ways, Looker was like a fast follower. And they were able to learn from RJ Metrics and they were able to, RJ Metrics in some ways was a real pioneer. Looker may be better capitalized, but was definitely a bit later and had an incredible, and obviously they had an incredible outcome and built an incredible product. What do you think are some of the advantages of being the follower?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about Looker that maybe, you know maybe being able to look at other players in the market benefited them in this regard, or maybe it was just that they had a really great, smart founding team, but yeah, obviously they had an
0: incredible team, like no yeah. doubt. Right.
1: But like one, one thing that, I think was true of them and was not true of RJ, is that they knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I think we had like, we had a mantra at RJ Metrics that was kind of like our company vision. And it was data driven decisions are better decisions. Like that is the worst vision that you could possibly have as a company because it allows you to say yes to literally anything. And you looked at how deep and how wide that RJ Metrics product got in terms of what it was capable of doing, you know what data sources it supported, what use cases and personas we went after. It was like trying to run 20 companies at once, basically. And Looker, on the other hand, knew this very, very precise value proposition it wanted to deliver for a precise persona and where it fit inside of the stack, which was probably the most important thing. You know, even I've heard stories about like, you look at how Looker's org chart evolved over time, and I don't think their engineering team ever got to more than like fifty or so people, um, which is remarkable wow. for how what kind of scale that business got to. But it's because they did. They said, "Look, we're not going to we're not going to be a data warehouse. We're not going to take care of data pipelining. We're not going to be." doing anything except for having this really awesome, innovative modeling layer around LookML that was kind of you know the big innovation for its time and giving people a really great business intelligence and kind of data exploration and dashboarding environment. So while it looked like an RJ Metrics competitor on the surface, they were doing one third of what we were doing from a like... Tech stack ambition standpoint, but they did it way more than three times
0: better. So it allowed so really them to. Just the, it's like putting yourself in a box, being very clear. I'm in this box, and then just making sure you're clearly the very best in that box.
1: Yeah, and then they got to ride out. You know, they were visionary in terms of sitting on top of. You know, they launched around the same time that Amazon Redshift was coming to market and became the fastest growing AWS product ever in that era and you know, BigQuery and Snowflake and other warehouses would follow. And Looker said, look, whereas RJ Metrics, you're literally porting your data over and RJ Metrics is hosting it for you in its own data warehouse that powers the analysis. Looker said, we're not going to care about any of that. We're going to just like, you put the data in your AWS instance inside of your Redshift, and we're just going to sit on top of it. And we're going to stand on the shoulders of giants and let the computational power of Redshift be the thing that actually creates the outputs. And we're just going to care about Modeling, dashboarding, modeling, dashboarding all day long and serve the users that care about that stuff. And it just allowed them to build a way better product because there was less to build and they had a clearer picture of who and what they were building for. So yeah, anyway, I know you asked a question about fast followers and I'm
0: going way down the why did Looker beat the pants off of us rabbit hole, (laughs) but hopefully it's interesting. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Okay, a couple of, I got a few personal questions for you before we, before we close it out. So one is, I know that you're part of like an improv comedy group. I think it's called (laughs) Big Baby Improv in Philly. Like what skills or lessons translate over from improv to startup life?
1: Yeah, I love improv. You know, the pandemic has squashed a lot of everybody's improv ambitions over the last the last couple of years. But I had a really good run from, I think it was around 2013 to 2018, where, yeah, I was on a house team at the Philly Improv Theater. That team was called Big Baby. And we were kind of one of the teams that would perform, you know, on a weekly basis for a Crowd that would vary from you know two people to a hundred people depending on how good the draw was that night. Yeah, the main idea with improv comedy, people sometimes mix it up with like stand-up or or sketch comedy. You know, stand-up is you and a microphone by yourself. Sketch comedy is like what you see on Saturday Night Live where it's all pre-written and you've got costumes and planning and, and blocking and lighting and stuff. Improv is absolute chaos. Improv is throw <laughs> a, a group of people on stage for 20 to 25 minutes. With maybe they take a one-word suggestion from the audience, maybe they don't, and they have to construct an entire cohesive show on the spot that is entertaining out of that that nothingness. And I absolutely right, I could
0: see where right just there how it has a lot of analogies to startup life. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And I think there's,
1: you know, there's kind of like there are the different ways that you can paint improv as like a metaphor for starting a company, <laughs> the,
0: the chaos, the pulling something from nothing. The what about the, the whole, in improv, there's kind of a yes and mentality. In some ways you think that that also may have some good analogies in startup life.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And there's a, the dirty little secret of like, if you take an improv 101 course, they will teach you yes and yes and yes. And. It's like the whole curriculum, right? It's like how yeah. to yes and how to be constructive. And the purpose of that is, It's not that every idea is a good idea or that every idea needs to be followed. It's that you are on a team where you are mutually constructing a reality. And if someone is participating in that reality and sees or observes something or contributes something out there into the air it can't be dropped. It needs to be acknowledged and incorporated in some way. And that doesn't mean you're going to follow it all the way. That doesn't mean that it's not a a dumb idea, right? Like sometimes yes anding something in improv is just acknowledging that someone has said something extremely stupid and like incorporating (laughs) that into the narrative and the dialogue. And what you can't do is, you know, as a teammate, you can't run out on stage like Michael Scott doing an improv scene on The Office and say, he's got a gun, you know, every 30 seconds, like invention. (laughs) that is a bad practice but also if somebody else incorporates some idea and says oh wow these grapes are really delicious you can't not talk about the grapes and i think the thing i take away from that is not that you know everything has to be like yes handed to death in a startup and every idea needs to be considered and followed through it's that there is a level of intellectual honesty that is required when an idea that is not outlandish, whether valid or not, gets brought up, there may be a germ of truth to that because it sits inside of somebody's reality. And the ability to listen enough that these ideas, good, bad, and ugly, that may show up from different sources that you trust or you don't trust, all kind of factor into your own calculus around how to solve this big optimization problem we're running and building a business. Like It's to keep an open mind, is to keep an open ear, and it's to make sure that the people that you are working with who have these ideas are not feeling like they're disregarded or not heard or they're not a part of this journey, even if their idea isn't always always the one that gets taken. And by the way, it's building up your own thick skin and intellectual honesty to accept the fact that your ideas are very often not good as well, and to kind of figure out how to like disagree and commit to pull another Amazonian phrase yeah. uh, into the conversation. Right when when something. You know, when you've got a really good idea for a a direction that a scene should go in, and you really wish we were all at a dentist's office, but it turns out that you're at the farmer's market, guess what? You're at the farmer's market now. So you better figure (laughs) out the way, you know, the way to make that the best possible place to start from and and direction to take it in. So the other thing I'll just toss out there anybody who is not just founders, but like folks that are generally in business or certainly on like the front of house side of business teams the extent to which it can really build muscle around being able to improvise authentically in conversations that that happen in a public space. There's nothing else like it. Like the density of learning that happens from repeatedly failing on stage in front of an audience at trying to <laughs> open something cohesive out of nothing. Like
0: this podcast is a great example, right? Like you we and I can edit out. it. Like, well, we can edit it. So if we say something stupid, this isn't live. <laughs> so we have a huge benefit here on this podcast. But I think that's the other great thing, too, is right, like what I love about doing things like this is like
1: you and I just showed up for this conversation today. And there was not like an hour-long prep call. There wasn't like a hey, let's make sure we hit points X, Y, and Z. I think there's an authenticity to the conversation and a willingness to Not fear the unknown of where this conversation might go, but actually embrace it and view it as maybe the most exciting part where the best little nuggets are going to get uncovered. And I think, like, if you can get to a point in your confidence around public speaking and public presentation where you feel that and you can embrace it and you can lean into it. And at the same time, you're not. Ostensibly bad at it, then it can be a
0: real, real superpower for a founder or anybody that's kind of on the public face. How do do you think in today's world it's a bit dangerous to play with ideas in real time because you may end up saying something that comes out the wrong way or et cetera, and so often. When you talk to a PR person, if you're going on a panel, they'll say, I want you to sound smart, but I don't want you to be interesting. Um, <laughs> right? Um, and so in a lot of PR advice, it's just like, hey, just sound smart, but don't say anything that's like too crazy, too out there, too whatever. Because if you if you're playing with ideas real time, it may be misconstrued or something. How do you think about that with this kind of like with this more of improv advice? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned PR because I was
1: having a conversation with somebody recently around PR firms and like you know what is their value to emerging companies in this like modern media landscape. And I've never had a huge amount of success with you know PR relationships as like paid engagements, but where I do think they're very valuable is in crisis situations. So like you know the PR firms I think that are are thriving in this era are the crisis PR firms that can yeah. kind of charge a premium and respond on a dime and kind of help people through. Those situations. But this gets back to, and I think this is something that needs to be muscle that is built up over the course of a career. And you can't have the improv instincts without also having a very well-defined sense of your own values and your own identity and your own relationship with transparency and where and how it fits into you know, your own kind of personal value system and your company's value system and the value system of your community and your ecosystem and all the stakeholders, whether it's your employees, your customers, or other folks who, whose well-being either directly or indirectly is influenced by your business and how you run it. And I think the dangerous thing in this improv mode is like, you should not listen to this and say, hey, I'm going to treat every PR interview like an improv scene and by the way, I've gone to one improv session. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, it's a learned you know,
0: skill for sure. Learn right? to
1: just follow everything. Yeah, I think it is a little bit of like, thank goodness that I spent five years doing this on stage in a room where there were no cameras because nobody cared <laughs> enough to record it. Right. <laughs> and frankly, went through like an eight year journey at RJ Metrics where all the best things you can hope for in a business happen and also all the worst things that you can hope for in a business happen. Right. Like, and having, Built out, you know, I've, I've used the phrase muscle memory a few times, but I think it's also half scar tissue that kind of shapes that sense of just like self-awareness and like confidence in in my own identity that gives me some, some level of comfort that I'm not going to say anything that I don't actually believe is true or believe is relevant in a lot of these conversations. That's a skill that, you know, any executive at any company, I think would be well served to proactively invest energy in developing before you go out there shooting from the hip in any
0: of these conversations because okay two more questions one before we close so when you started crossbeam you were a fatherless carefree guy <laughs> now you've got two little ones running around in short order how does that affect you as being a ceo how does that new parent affect you
1: yeah i tell you what what does and does not constitute a high leverage use of my time has definitely changed quite a bit. I think in the you rewind the clock a decade and I was definitely that kind of stereotypical 20-something tech startup founder that was working 80 hours a week and kind of always always had some reason why I was the best person to be taking on that next incremental project and figuring out how to how to chase it down and push it forward. And I think you know what's very different in Crossbeam is it's a confluence of things that have all happened at once and I don't know what to attribute to what but You know, so many things are true here that were not true in the past. We are and always have been a remote first company, even before the pandemic, right? So our dependence upon and the extent to which like our business cadence is run through these asynchronous tools that allow work to be done remotely and not necessarily in real time all the time is is like wildly different than it was a decade ago. I have kids, so there are definitely hard time constraints and windows of time in my calendar that are sacred and untouchable. And that has just become like a law of the land around how i live my life and schedule business meetings and you know if there's something that absolutely positively needs to happen during bath time that better be the exception not the rule you know that that's happening once a month instead of every every tuesday and i think what i've learned from all that is you get to pick what, what guardrails you put in place as a business leader, and it is amazing to see organizationally how things are able to adapt around those things. What I think has made Crossbeam culturally probably a much healthier place than my past businesses is just the, the level of self-awareness that I and other leaders here that are just in a different kind of phase of their life around you know having families and having children, the lens of empathy that's been able to be applied around everything from our company policies around you know, maternity and paternity leave to time off to, you know, kind of flexible family time policies and working hour policies and, you know, the ways in which we structure and think about benefits, you know, all of that stuff, I think gets the benefit of a much more, and this is not just from me, but I think it's from, you know, across the board, you know, having a more seasoned executive team, just a level of empathy that wasn't there before. So yeah, I mean, my my life is way different. The reality is I do... I work fewer hours a week than I used to at RJ Metrics, but I think I create more shareholder value in any given incremental week here at Crossbeam than I, than I did in any week ever in those past businesses. And I think it's being able to pick the right bets, you know, invest my time really intelligently and build for the long-term as opposed to kind of squeezing out those local maximums every chance I get by, by just taxing my own calendar.
0: All right. That's really helpful. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests is what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice?
1: Oh, I love this. Man, talk about putting me in an improv scene. <laughs> totally. I feel like I want to zoom out on this one a little bit as opposed to something like more tactical in our world here. And I guess like the one thing that I think feels very natural for a lot of a lot of founders and a lot of people like kind of in like high stakes situations is that It's advantageous to seem like you are the smartest person in the room or that you have the answers to every question when they get asked. And, like, where I think this comes up a lot for early stage founders is in like pitching venture capital firms, right? Like, you get brought into the room and you're in a partner meeting and you're getting grilled by a bunch of people who have varying levels of knowledge about your business. And, like, I think the thing early in my career I was very allergic to doing was ever saying, I don't know. Like, uh, I think I would always jump through hoops to try and articulate a response that sounded like i was coming from a place of knowledge and i think what i've learned you know as more time has gone by is the extreme power that's embedded in the ability to say i don't know especially in a room like that where one of the the main assets and the de-risking factors of someone that's trying to build a company is their self-awareness and it gets back to that intellectual honesty thing i was talking about before so i think the it's okay to not know even when it feels like maybe you should know I think it's always better to admit where you've got these gaps and be intellectually honest and transparent about them to your employees to your customers to your venture stakeholders because if that's a problem that you don't know that thing then it'll bubble up to be something that you you know don't not know about pretty soon and if not then it becomes something where you can have a really valuable conversation about the importance of that thing and how to fill that gap either by you getting sharper or by augmenting your team to, to help fill it out yeah I guess like
0: it's okay. Yeah, so that's great. That's great advice, and it, it, certainly I've gone through a similar journey. And though I would say it's much easier to do when you're coming from like a place of strength. As a third-time entrepreneur, I can imagine it's just much easier for you to say that. You know, they're not going to necessarily think less of you. You know, as a when you and I were both twenty-something entrepreneurs, we felt like we had to prove ourselves all the time, and you know, we, we didn't have a lot of resume behind what we we're doing, and so we may have had had a little bit more bluster back then.
1: Yeah, I def- I acknowledge definitely that I'm able to give that answer from a place of extreme privilege. And probably if I told that to my my 20 something year old self, right, you probably disregard uh, it. I, you know, I would have, uh, you know, been listened to and, and guessed out of the room, and then I would have gone and acted, you know, super defensive in in the next meeting as well. But my suggestion there would be to like try it out, try it out in small doses, try it out in yeah. low stakes situations, and just like what you will be shocked by is how how good it makes you feel coming out it, like the burden that gets placed on your shoulders of you carrying the perception that you know things that you actually don't know a lot about, like relieving yourself of that burden is huge in the moment and after the fact, just like from a mental health standpoint, I think that's a, a, really, a really valuable thing to not put on your own shoulders. And then how little people care slash how much it actually helps your reputation and your relationships with those people to do it. So, like, yeah, it may be in the high stakes venture pitch meeting, is not the first place to like give that philosophy a spin, but I'm sure you can find a lot more places in your life where if you build up this defensive shield where you always have to know stuff, just start not knowing once in a while and look at how the world around you reacts. And you might be surprised at how much more of a nuanced approach you can take and how it might benefit you.
0: All right. I love it. Well, thank you, Bob. Really appreciate it. This has been great. Where else can people find you on the broader interwebs?
1: Yeah. Crossbeam.com is where it's at. If you awesome. if you haven't used or signed up for it, that's that's the place to be. I'm Robert J. Moore on Twitter, but all roads lead to Crossbeam. So I, I'd head on over there.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us on World of Us. This has been terrific. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Always great to catch up and hope we talk again soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at, at Oren. that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.